0: Welcome to the Net Positive Podcast, a series of podcasts on clean energy and the environment. The Net Positive is about crafting healthy communities and a sustainable world. These explorations are designed to educate and inspire. That's when we get action. I am your host, Ted Flanagan, and this edition of The Net Positive features Econet News, Volume 22. Issue number two, May 2020. Flanagan's Ecologic, crafting a safe and sustainable post-COVID world. Twisted is the environmental news. There were no Earth Day 50 gatherings this year, except online. April 22nd came and went. But the news and social media brings us stunning images of wildlife on the Yosemite Valley floor. Fantastic sea turtle populations. Whales have been freed of incessant low-frequency sounds of freighters now less traveled. Italians can now see fish in the canals of Venice. A sunken ship laying on its side is visible from the air due to the calm in the Great Lakes. So many magical images of our clean environment given the eerie and painful shutdown of our economy. The freeway maps of L.A. are all green, no traffic. People are walking and biking in their neighborhoods. Clear skies in Beirut. Large Chinese coal plants toggle down 60%. Certain parts of India can now see the snow-capped Himalayas for the first time in years. The International Energy Agency projected in March that global energy demand for the year will drop by 6%, and greenhouse gas emissions are slated to fall by 8%, to their lowest level since 2010, And the largest drop in history the anticipated eight percent drop in oil use is the biggest decline since world war ii our cities have been able to take a breath of fresh air nitrous oxides down over 50 percent in madrid parrots and other large cities a boon for the environment habitat is relaxed animals have more room to roam herds of deer in japanese neighborhoods monkeys loiter in new delhi Wild turkeys and now abandoned playgrounds in Oakland. There are wild mountain goats in Wales. Some think that, that at long last the pandas in a Chinese zoo consummated their relationship, possibly thanks to the lack of oogling zoo visitors. Some experts believe that humans have had a lot to do with the pandemic rampant deforestation, uncontrolled expansion of agriculture, intensive farming, mining, and infrastructure development as well as exploitation of wild species, have created a perfect storm for the spillover of disease from wildlife to people, is one explanation. New Zealand's leaders are now preparing to spend a billion dollars on nature, working to build thriving forests and wetlands to avoid future pest control costs. The most optimistic vision of our recovery from COVID-19 is that we not only gain control of the pandemic and our health, but that we take the best of the shutdown and make it long-term. As individuals, we want the clean air, the clean water, the uncongested freeways. We need adequate hospital capacity with American-made PPE. We buy it local. We eat local. We support local restaurants. We telecommute and drive less. We Zoom and WebEx more. Flights become a privilege rather than a weekly right. We reach out to old friends and honor family more. We play more music. We cook more. We value more the process of making art and cherishing friends. The United States must regain its leadership position with climate protection, promoting entrepreneurship, innovation, and collaboration like war efforts of the past. The war on carbon must not take a back seat to the pandemic. Deva Sri Saha of the World Resources Institute is quoted above. We cannot miss this chance to recover from the pandemic in ways that make sense, in ways that are strategic, putting low-carbon sector jobs at the forefront. More focus on energy efficiency that creates jobs and savings. More public transportation. We need to modernize the electric grid to make storage real. And we need massive tree restoration, support for wind farms and electric vehicles. Let's rebuild for resilience, health, and well-being. Let's be the change agents. While we recover, we must promote change through policies and leadership and community action, doubling down on climate protection and equity. Just as we are bound together to fight the coronavirus, we must be bound together to aggressively address the very real threat of climate change that could kill millions of global citizens, destroying the quality of life we cherish and causing economic impacts larger than COVID-19. Quote of the Week COVID 19 offers us a chance to rebuild the U.S. economy in a cleaner and more sustainable way. U.S. policymakers should not miss this chance to place climate change and investments in the low carbon infrastructure at the heart of the recovery process. Deva Shri Saha, World Resources Institute. Three climate hero trees. An article with terrific images and simple messaging was done by Vox Media in its December 2019 piece titled, These Three Trees Can Protect Us From Climate Collapse. The research is well done. The article, a powerful communication supported by the Pulitzer Center. The authors traveled to locations in Brazil, Indonesia, and Democratic Republic of Congo to document these species. These countries have the largest percentage of tropical forests within their borders, as well as the highest rates of deforestation. The Brazil nut tree, Bertholitia excelsa, is enormous, the height of 14-story buildings. These trees channel up to 260 gallons of water each day from soil to sky, through their roots, up their trunks, and out through their leaves. They cause the rainforest to rain. The Amazon rainforest covers eight countries, and its trees pump massive amounts of water into the atmosphere. At times, there is more water in the air above the Amazon rainforest than there is water in the 4,000-mile Amazon River. The Brazil nut tree is threatened by soy farmers, cattle ranchers, and miners destroying the forests. A second super tree is the Indonesian stilt mangrove, rhizophora, that lives in the tides. Its roots are rinsed daily by briny water. Indonesia has 23% of the world's mangroves, an area the size of Belgium. In addition to coastal protection, habitat protection for small fish, these mangroves absorb 5 to 10 times as much CO2 per acre as rainforests. As their leaves fall, get caught in wet soil, they are trapped and form blue carbon, underground storage of carbon up to 10 feet deep. Given this unusually productive carbon capture, the preservation and restoration of mangroves is considered a promising negative emissions technology net. The third tree featured is the Afromosia, the African teak tree that lives in the Congo Basin, the world's second largest rainforest, covering six countries. These trees are huge carbon sinks, grow rapidly while serving as the forest caretakers. They provide food in the form of unripe sea pods for monkeys and birds and shade for other flora and fauna. Their bark is flame-resistant. Given demand for their wood, for yachts, and for flooring in the United States, Europe, and China, described as an insatiable appetite, they've gone extinct in several countries. Renewable Natural Gas 201. An esteemed colleague stumped on renewable gas, or RNG, the other day, insisting that the impacts of forming methane in our society far outweigh the benefits. Look at the global warming potential of methane, some 30 times that of CO2. And remember that pipelines leak, he stressed. But what about the solar hydrogen economy, I ask? Isn't RNG a bridge to that future? My friend was quite adamant. There is no reason to form the the RNG production industry because it is fundamentally based on wasteful habits. Ideally, there will be no methane, as organic materials are smartly reused, without the anaerobic digestion that produces methane. Now, let's back up a bit. There are three primary sources of RNG. Anaerobic digestion occurs in the absence of air in landfills, animal animal manure on farms, water resources, reclamation plants, and food materials. Second, gasification produces RNG from agricultural residues, forestry and forest product resources, energy crops, and municipal solid waste. Third is power to gas, P to G, which results from the production of hydrogen from electrolytic or photolytic processes that splits water using renewable resources and the methanation of hydrogen to use in natural gas pipelines. Sparking the debate about RNG is another acronym, CAFO, for Concentrated Animal Feeding Operations. CAFOs are problematic in many ways that the Sierra Club articulated in a policy brief on methane digesters using manure. CAFOs are disastrous in many ways. Diseases, antibiotics, growth hormones, waste runoff, mistreatment of animals, disruptions to community farming. So their fundamental operations are in the crosshairs. On a case-by-case basis, the Sierra Club sees merit in some instances for methane digesters on small farms. In addition to digesters at CAFOs, There are digesters for aquaculture products, organic wastes, wastewater, food waste, garden and lawn clippings, plant material, paper, cardboard, and wood. The methane is produced in the decomposition of organic materials. For farms, there are alternatives. Instead of collecting and centralizing manure production for anaerobic digestion, farmers can create compost through aerobic digestion. Bacteria in the presence of oxygen that releases CO2, not methane, or in cases can spread manure on their fields, providing enrichment to the soils without fermentation. Clearly, given methane's greenhouse gas intensity, and the fact that our society has landfills, it is better to collect methane emanating from landfills than to release landfill gases into the air. RNG collection that keeps methane out of the atmosphere is carbon negative, meaning that more CO2-equivalent gas is captured than is given off in the combustion or fuel cell use, of the methane. Gasification holds promise for a broad spectrum of organic materials. A pilot plant in Gothenburg, Sweden, effectively used forest revenues to produce RNG. Municipal solid waste can be gasified to create fuel. The power-to-grid concept utilizes excess renewables, using the infamous utility duct curve's excesses rather than allowing the duct curve to thwart further development of wind and solar. The hydrogen fuel can be bottled and sold for vehicle fuel or can be injected in natural gas pipelines to a point, creating hydrogen-rich natural gas. But that has its limits at about 10% concentration. For widespread pipeline use, the gas distribution system and all end-use appliances would have to be converted for hydrogen. The near-term pathway for P2G hydrogen is methanation, so that the hydrogen gas can be mixed with geologic or renewable natural gas in the existing gas pipeline and distribution infrastructure. This is done using the Sabatier reaction that was developed in 1897 by a Frenchman who won the Nobel Prize for his chemistry works. The process uses electrolysis to split water into oxygen and hydrogen. By adding CO2, methane is created. This process of methanation provides for synthetic natural gas That can be used readily in existing natural gas systems. Until we radically transform our society and eliminate centralized waste streams, RNG has a role in our society and represents a positive step forward. The reputation of CAFOs ought not shadow other beneficial sources of RNG. Clearly, unless we abandon them, we must tighten our natural gas pipelines. While a bit complex, There are reasons to value this carbon-negative fuel source as a piece of the puzzle on a pathway to a sustainable future. More to come on this. 47.1% Photovoltaic Efficiency Reachers in the high-efficiency crystalline photovoltaic group at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, NREL, in Golden, Colorado, have created a six-junction photovoltaic cell that achieved 47.1% efficiency. For years, solar panels have been delivering power, converting 15 to 17 percent of the sunlight's potential into electricity. Higher quality, higher cost cells have reached as high as 22 to 23 percent efficiencies. NREL's recent and dramatic efficiency gain, doubling the industry's best practices, was possible thanks to the use of special 111V materials, so called because of their place on the periodic table. The record-breaking 47.1% efficiency value was measured under concentrated illumination. At one sun of intensity, one kW per square meter, the multi-junction solar cells converted 39.2% of the light into the current. Each of the cell's six junctions, photoactive layers, is specially designed to capture light from a special part of the solar spectrum. In all... 140 layers of materials were used to support this record breaking performance. Big solar and Qatar's record low price. Wikisolar reports that large scale solar experienced a record year in 2019 after a dip in 2017 and 18. In 2019, 45 gigawatts was installed worldwide, bringing the cumulative total to 220 gigawatts. The top three countries, China with 69 gigawatts, the United States 40 gigawatts, and India 30 gigawatts, were far ahead of the rest of the pack. United Kingdom, Japan, Germany, Spain, Australia, Mexico, and France round out the top 10 countries in terms of cumulative solar capacity. The number one installer in 2019 was the United States with 9.6 gigawatts of new solar. But read on to see which country is the least cost installer in the world. Qatar General Water and Electricity Corporation, Karahama, announced that it's a request for solar proposals and its selection process was closed last week for a 800-megawatt photovoltaic project. The final award was based on a power purchase price of 0.051 Qatari Rial per kilowatt-hour. That's 1.57 U.S. cents per kilowatt-hour for 25 years representing the lowest-cost, large-scale renewable energy award ever known. The project will be owned 60% by Siraj Energy, a joint venture founded by Qatar Petroleum and Karama, and 40% by a consortium made up of a a French oil giant, Total, and Japanese Marubeni Corporation. They undercut the previous record-holding low price when Akuo Energy contracted for 1.67 cent per kilowatt-hour solar for 150 megawatts in Portugal. The Saudi Arabian energy group ACWA Power reportedly came very close to that record offer with its pricing for the fifth phase of the Mohammed bin Rashid al-Maktoum solar park in Dubai. Sweden is coal-free. On April 16th, Sweden announced that it has officially closed its last coal-fired power plant, two years ahead of its 2022 pledge and join Belgium, 2016, and Austria, 2020, as the trio of Euro- European countries that are now coal-free. The Swedish government's announcement followed Stockholm Energy's decision to permanently close its last coal plant. The utility has shuttered its last boiler there, given the mild winter. The plant's closure will half its utility emissions from around 900,000 tons to 441,000 tons. Six other European countries have pledged to eliminate coal-fired power production by 2025. France, Slovakia, Portugal, United Kingdom, Ireland, and Italy. Five more countries will be coal-free by 2030. Germany, the world's number one producer of brown lignite coal, pledged to do so by 2038. Meanwhile, big progress to going coal-free is being made stateside. Partly due to the pandemic, renewables... Are producing more power than coal for the first time ever. That's unthinkable. A decade ago, coal was the nation's base load power source, providing about 50% of our country's requirement. In the first four and a half months of 2020, America's wind turbines, solar panels, and hydroelectric dams produced more electricity than coal on 90 separate days, shattering last year's 38 day count. On May 1st in Texas, wind produced three times as much power as coal. In the United States, wind prices are down 40% in a decade. Solar, 80%. Fracking for natural gas has cut gas costs, making coal all the more uncompetitive in the markets. American utilities have closed hundreds of coal plants in this decade. Coal is expected to drop 25% this year, providing 19% of the nation's power in 2020, less than renewables. California to Mandate Electric Trucks California's policymakers are developing a first-of-its-kind plan to phase in electric trucks. The rules cover trucks from full-sized pickups to huge semis and everything in between. The California Air Resources Board goal is for 100% of trucks to be zero emission by 2045. CARB ruled in 2018 that public transit agencies achieve 100% zero emission fleets by 2040. The final draft of its advanced clean truck standards that is expected to be adopted later this year will be the first in the country. Truck manufacturers will have to meet production goals for electric trucks. They will need to have produced 100,000 electric trucks by 2030, out of 1.8 million trucks projected to be on the road, and to have produced 300,000 electric trucks by 3035, out of the 1.9 million trucks anticipated. These goals double the goals in previous draft of the plan. The final draft also calls for 4,000 electric trucks by 2024, moved up from 2027, out of around 75,000 trucks per year in total sales. Class 2B pickups, such as the Ford 250, are now included in the standard for 2024, rather than being exempt until 2027, as was stated in the prior draft. The CARB policy will apply to, to only those companies selling more than 500 trucks annually. These include Daimler, which makes Freightliner, Thomas Built Buses, Western Star, Paccar, Kenworth, Peterbilt, Navistar, International, IC Bus, Ford, GM, Chevrolet, GMC, Fiat Chrysler, Dodge, Nissan, Isuzu, Toyota, Hino, and Volvo Group. The marginal cost for an electric tractor-trailer could be $100,000. Union of Concerned Scientists notes that trucks make up 10% of all vehicles nationally. The 28 million trucks and buses recorded in 2019 are responsible for 28% of the total carbon emissions in the transportation sector. Heavy-duty vehicles are responsible for 45% of nitrous oxides and 57% of particulate matter 2.5. According to Electrek. there are now more than 75% Electric trucks and buses available from 27 manufacturers. Finally, there is a precedence and a hope. California's goal for zero emissions cars is 5 million by 2030, and so far we're at 700,000. Laundry to landscape. This caught my eye. A neighboring utility is offering no-cost installations of systems to recover gray water from laundry machines. The systems are simple, and pipe the water into landscapes. They call it L2L, Laundry to Landscapes. If you live in Pasadena, you can call and have a system at no cost. Just fill in a direct install graywater application, get an on-site survey of property. There's no required permit for the DIY do-it-yourself installation. Art Ludwig of Oasis Design originated the Laundry to Landscape graywater system and published it unpatented, into the public domain in 2008 for the good of all. Simple solutions, no pumps, just gravity, no filters that clog. Easiest way to use it, pipe it outside to water ornamental plants. The system can also be used for vegetables as long as the water does not touch the edible parts of the plant. Of course, it is essential to use plant-friendly products without lots of salt, boron, or chlorine bleach. Due to the inherent simplicity, and low cost, these systems have been adopted, accommodated in building codes, the subject of government rebates, workshops, and government training. OASIS cites Greywater Action as the premier provider of workshops on laundry to landscape systems. The most basic form of graywater system is laundry to landscape, typically moving less than 250 gallons per day. Greywater comes from showers, bathtubs, washing machines, and bathroom sinks wastewater from toilets, kitchen sinks, and dishwashers is kept separate and suited for the sewer. Graywater Action Group, based in Berkeley, California, notes that graywater may contain traces of dirt, food, grease, hair, and certain household cleaning products. While graywater may look dirty, it is safe and beneficial source of irrigation water in a yard. Keep in mind that if graywater is released into rivers, lakes, or estuaries, its nutrients become pollutants, But to plants, they are valuable fertilizer. Appointment news. Ted Flanagan, that's me, your host. I've been appointed to the Glendale Water and Power Commission. Glendale Water and Power is one of California's municipal utilities, forty-six of which serve water, forty-four serve electricity. GWP serves Glendale's two hundred six thousand residents with sales of seven point six billion gallons of water and one thousand four hundred ninety gigawatt hours of electricity each year. Its peak electric demand is 332 megawatts. Its service territory covers 31 square miles. The Commission's role is to advise the Glendale City Council on utility issues and activities. The Commissioners serve four-year terms. That's it. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of The Net Positive. We'll see you next time.